السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته Can someone just give me a quick mic check? Just make sure the sound is okay, inshallah ta'ala. And then we can begin. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wal-aqibatu lil-muttaqeen. Wal-adwala illa ala al-zalimeen. Wa ashadu an la ilaha illa allahu wahtahu la sharika lah. Ilahu al-awwaleen wal-akhirin. Wa ashadu anna nabiyyana muhammadan abduhu wa rasooluhu al-mustafa al-ameen. اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد. So welcome to our second lesson of the year, our second lesson of of this year of QP, our fifth year of Quranic progression. And as I mentioned last week, then inshallah taala, this week we're going to continue with our usual tafsir. Last week we had a special when we spoke about the uh, the signs of Addul Ay, the numbering of verses in the Quran, and inshallah ta'ala today we're going to continue with our tafsir of the Quran, and we that means that we're going to begin with the tafsir of Surah Al Ghashiyah. Uh, but before we do that, one of the things that we asked last week, and I, I'm just going to quickly scroll through these messages uh, just to see. Okay, uh, the research question that we had last uh, last week, or the one that I wanted you to uh, to look into, is. How can we reconcile the differing uh, reports related to Addul Ay? So, for example, we mentioned two examples last week. The first of them being Surah Al-Fatiha, where the numbering of verses includes the Basmalah and doesn't include the Basmalah, depending on which numbering you go to. And both are mutawatir from the Prophet ﷺ. Both are accepted. And the second being uh, Ayat Al-Kursi. That's the second example we gave of how in some numberings, as we mentioned last week, it is considered to be two verses, not one. So how do we reconcile these two numberings with the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ that we have, where the Prophet ﷺ says, for example, in the hadith of Abu Sa'id ibn al-Mu'alla, concerning Surah Al-Fatiha, when Allah says that I have divided Fatiha between me and my servant, and the hadith begins by mentioning, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, and it doesn't mention the Basmala, and that's, uh, you know, for those of you that remember that far back when we did the Basmalah, when we did the Tafsir of Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, it's one of the evidences used by those scholars who said that the Basmalah isn't from Fatiha. Uh, and then, obviously, the hadith that we have concerning Ayat al-Kursi, the hadith of Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiyallahu an, when the Prophet asked him which is the greatest verse of the Quran, and he replied, Allahu la ilaha illa al-Hayyim qayyum. So the Prophet didn't say which two verses, he called it a single verse. So this is the question that I had for you, and I wanted to see uh, what you had in terms of answers. Um, okay, so let's go with the question that Farheen asked. Uh, Assalamu alaikum, I'm a beginner. Let's have a small query. If the number of verses are different in surahs, what is the standard followed for international referencing? Usually, the standard that is going to be followed for international referencing will be the reading of Hafs, which is the reading that we have of the Quran. So Hafs and Asim is the one that we do. That's what most people in the world read and use today. Uh, however, if you were, for example, from Morocco, where they read in the Qira'a Barsh, that's the normal Qira'a that they use, they will use the numbering of Al-Madani Al-Akhir. And so that will be different then to the Mus'haf of the one that we use in terms of its numbering, because they, they read with a different Qira'a. And likewise, in those places that read, for example, with Duri, or in other parts of Northern Africa where they read in Qalun, 
and so on and so forth. Each one depending upon, you know, who the Imam is, they will and, and which city he originally came from will use the ad. As we mentioned last week, there are seven different ads that they use from Kufa and Basra and Mecca and Medina and so on. And each one of those is, is referring to one of the Qur'a that hailed from those particular cities and those particular parts of the Muslim world. Um, okay, so Salanja has given us a long uh, one. Let me just quickly read this. The reason for the difference of opinion over the verse breaks is that the Prophet would stop while reciting the Quran. The locations upon which the Prophet always stopped and never connected or agreed upon his verse breaks, and there is no difference of opinion over them. Then there are locations upon which the Prophet never stopped, or rather always continues recitation. So these two are agreed upon that there are not verse breaks. Then there are others. Locations upon which the Prophet sometimes stopped, sometimes didn't. And these locations. So this is referring to something else. This is not what we're referring to. I think what Sheikh Yasser is referring to here is referring to uh, what we call al-waqf al-ibtida. He's talking about when you pause and when you don't pause in the recitation of a single verse. I think that's probably what he's referring to. I don't think he's referring to Addul Ay. Because there is no difference of opinion uh, in, in Addul Ay in terms of uh, all of it being from the Prophet wasallam, And the Prophet would stop at the end of every verse as is the hadith of Umm Salam radiallahu anha and others that the Prophet would always stop at the end of every verse. So what he's referring to here is where sometimes he would stop and sometimes he wouldn't stop and sometimes you know he, he always stops and whatever. That's probably referring to waqf and ibtida. When you're reciting, you're running out of breath. Where's a good place to stop in the middle of a verse and where's an appropriate place to restart from? I think that's probably what he's referring to. Although I don't have the book uh, in front of me now. But I, I assume uh, if you look at the chapter heading, I assume that's what he's referring to anyway. Uh, so let me answer the question. Um, let me answer the question. Uh, unless someone else has uh, has something else that they want to add, in which case we can, you know, we can like give everyone a couple of minutes. So my general thing, you know, whilst we're waiting for a couple of minutes, my general thing now from here on in, now that we're now fifth year of Quranic progression, is when I give out these research questions from time to time. Um, what I want essentially from those students from amongst you who are you know like dedicated students who are motivated to take your studies to a high level who are interested in not just taking the basics but you want to go to a deeper level is I would expect you to actually go and research and you know not necessarily just copy and paste from a book or something but actually to try your best uh, with the resources that you have available to see what it is that you can refer to. Um, these questions are important, by the way, simply because this is one of the reasons now why people will come and say, you know, this this uh, recent thing where we have that the Quran is not preserved, that there are problems with the with the compilation of the Quran, that there are problems because of these qiraat and the way that they're done and so on. These are all issues now that are coming up once again, and even though they are issues that have come up from time to time, they weren't necessarily very apparent a few hundred years ago. But as now people are becoming more distanced from uh, from the traditional sciences, and they're going more into philosophy and other types of, of uh, you know, of, of sciences that, that lead them away from the traditional sciences of the Quran and the Sunnah. Then these questions will come up because they're taught to critically think, and they're taught to question everything, and they're taught to analyze everything, and so on. And so they will obviously ask these questions. Side by side with that problem is therefore that also then they they lack the ability to go and research correctly. So what most people will do is that they will just pick up a single book. And that's what they will read. Even if the book isn't a specialist subject book on the issue that they're actually uh, studying or that they're researching. Or the author isn't a specialist in that particular field. So for example, um, you know, if you want to look at uh, you know, a book 
for example, an Addul Ay, it is a mistake to go to the books of Tafsir to look at what Addul Ay is, because Addul Ay is a science in and of itself. It's like, for example, someone who wants to learn Fiqh, learning it from a Tafsir book. Learning, even though the Tafsir book may mention it, you go to Al Qurtubi, for example, he mentions many times the differences of opinion in the scholars of fiqh and you will find the same in Ibn Kathir and you will find in others but they're not specialist fiqh books to take your fiqh from a tafsir book is in itself a problem in methodology what you would do is you would go to a fiqh book and that specializes in the fiqh of the Hanbalis or the Shafi'is or in comparative fiqh or whatever it may be and that's where you would study and learn your fiqh from likewise if you wanted to study in detail Addul Ay and ask about these questions and see how the scholars approach them then you would go to those scholars and those books that specialize in Addul Ay you wouldn't just go to tafsir, even though there are books of tafsir that will speak about it and mention it. Why? Because once again, it is not exactly one and the same thing. And that is why, therefore, it is also therefore important to remember that there are scholars who are specialists in fields, and a specialist, even in specialists, there are degrees of speciality. So someone can be a specialist, for example, in Quran in general. Doesn't mean they're a specialist, for example, in Qiraat. There are many scholars today of tafsir. Many scholars of tafsir, and even in the past there were scholars of tafsir, but when it came to qira'at, they weren't scholars of qira'at. And a good example of this is Jalaleen. For those of you that did the reading of Jalaleen with me, you will find, and we mention this from time to time, that sometimes the Jalaleen, they will say within a single verse that these are the qira'at. And they will mention a qira'at which is shahd. It's not even one of the qira'at that is accepted by the Muslim ummah. And, and Jalal al-Din al-Suyutian, his teacher, came in the 10th century of Islam. So I'm not saying this is still when these sciences are being formulated. They came nearly a thousand years after the Prophet wasallam, And so uh, they are not specialists. They are, they are scholars of specialism in tafsir, but not in qira'at. And likewise, you have scholars who may be specialists in tafsir, but they're not specialists in abdul ay. And so therefore, it is important in terms of methodology to look at those particular scholars and to see how it is that they understand these particular issues that are being uh, referred to. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Um, Okay, so the way that we would understand this, therefore this issue, is that when the Prophet is referring to this surah being of seven verses, or Ayat al-Kursi being of two verses, or being one verse instead of two, even though there are both, both are mutawatir from the Prophet ﷺ, the Ayat al-Kursi can be counted as a single verse and it can be counted as two. When the Prophet ﷺ in Hadith says it is a single verse, he's referring to it just from that point of view, just from that perspective of the reading of it being a single verse. And so there is no contradiction between the Prophet ﷺ saying that there is a verse in the Qur'an, because according to one reading, it is a verse in the Qur'an, it is a single verse of the Qur'an. And in the other reading, there's two verses, but it is understood by me and by you and by the scholars of tafsir and by everyone else that it is essentially one and the same thing that the Prophet ﷺ is referring to. And that is why in the hadith, the Prophet ﷺ stipulates and he says it is the verse, Allahu la ilaha illa al hayyul qayyum. And so he tells us this is the verse that I am referring to. This is what I am referring to. Likewise in Surah Al-Fatiha. We can say exactly the same thing. The Prophet said that there are seven verses in some ahadith. He begins with the hamdalah. He begins by saying, Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen is verse number one. And that is according to one numbering. But in the other numbering, we know that there is the uh, the basmala is included that you start with Bismillah Rahman Rahim. So the Prophet is referring to it from one aspect only and not from both aspects. And so therefore, 
uh, there's no contradiction between the Prophet saying that there are seven verses in Fatiha because that is all agreed upon. And even those scholars who don't read or don't consider the Basmala, Bismillah Rahman Rahim, to be from the seven, they will say that you read it anyway. Why? Because that is what you do at the beginning of every surah except for Surah Al Tawbah. You would read Bismillah Rahman Rahim. And then whether it's part of the verse or part of the surah according to one numbering or not part of the surah according to another numbering is simply a matter of difference in terms of the way that we are numbering the particular verses of that surah. And so there is no contradiction between the two things. So there is no contradiction because the Prophet sometimes just refers to it from a single point of view rather than saying, you know, I taught you that it was two and I taught you that it was one, but actually what I'm referring to is one and the same. It was understood and that's why you will find in all of the books of hadith and tafsir and fiqh and seerah and everything else that the scholars understood this of old. Even though these mutawatir uh, numberings of verses and qiraat and everything is there, it's been there from the time of the Prophet wasallam. It's similar, for example, for us to say, it's very similar in the qiraat. So for example, in the hadith of Abu Sa'id ibn Mu'alla radiallahu anhu, when Allah Azza wa says that I have divided Fatiha between me and my servant. So then the Prophet said, when the servant recites Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Allah says that my servant has praised me. When he says Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim, my servant has thanked me and so on and so forth. The hadith that you know. The Prophet says, Maliki Yawmiddin. And my servant says, he has glorified me. He didn't say Maliki Yawmiddin even though that second recitation is a mutawatir qira'ah. So therefore, does that mean though now the one who recites Maliki, which is by the way the majority of the Qur'an, the majority of the ten Qur'an, read Maliki Yomidin and not Maliki Yomidin. So does that mean that all of those people that read in Nafi' and read in, uh, for Abu Amr al-Basri and Ibn Kathir and all of those other Qur'an that read and take the reading of Maliki Yomidin, the all of them now aren't counted in the Hadith? No scholar would say this. In fact, no, I don't think any Muslim would make that assertion. And so they understand that yes, there's a difference in qira'ah, but the meaning of the hadith encompasses all. So likewise with the addul ay, because this is mutawatir and this is mutawatir, all come from the Prophet they also understood that the numbering of verses encompasses it all. And there is only a difference because in one numbering you include this and in one numbering you include that. But actually the meaning of the verse is one and the same. And that is why no scholar said that Ayatul Kursi only refers to the first portion, Allahu la ilaha illallah qayyum, because that's the verse according to some, you know, that's the part that everyone agrees upon is part of Ayatul Kursi. And then according to some numberings, you know, the rest of it is actually a different verse. No one ever said this before. Why? Because they understood the meaning of what the Prophet ﷺ is referring to. And the Prophet ﷺ can't be there always picking out every single dialect and every single, like in the Quran, in every single hadith. It's not possible. It doesn't make sense that the Prophet would say, oh, and by the way, your qira'ah is included and your qira'ah and your dialect and your dialect and this. The Prophet ﷺ, is, does, the sunnah doesn't work in that particular way. And so the, the best reference point or the best way to understand it would simply be to use qira'at as an example. When the Prophet ﷺ says, Whoever says Maliki Yomidin, this is the reward that they get, doesn't mean that the one who doesn't recite that doesn't get Maliki Yomidin. And likewise, so on and so forth, in every single hadith that you will find concerning the virtues of the surahs of the Quran and their rewards, for example, the rewards of reciting Suratul Ikhlas and so on and so forth, all of these different things that you will find within the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Sunnah of the Prophet, all of them therefore are included within that particular numbering. And it goes back to that one asal and that one same principle and that is the very simple fact that the Prophet ﷺ is the one who uh, gave us all of this in the first place. He is the one who set that numbering. And so therefore all of this comes back from the Prophet ﷺ.
Okay. So let us now go to, inshallah ta'ala, I hope that that's clear. Uh, let's go now to the tafsir of our surah that we're going to begin with today. And that is the tafsir of Surah Al-Ghashiyah. Surah Al-Ghashiyah is the 88th surah of the Quran. The 88th surah of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as we usually do when we start the tafsir of a surah, we go through a number of introductory points before we go into the actual surah itself. So the first thing that we usually do is we speak about the names of the surah, or the names that you will find uh, that the surah has been referred to in the books of hadith and tafsir uh, and ulum al-Quran, sciences of Quran and so on and so forth. So with Surah Al-Ghashiyah, its first name and perhaps the most well-known of its names is Al-Ghashiyah. It is referred to by in this way by many of the scholars of the Salaf. So for example, Abdullah ibn Mubarak, Ibn Qutaybah, and Imam Tirmidhi in his book of Hadith, and Nasai in his book of Tafsir, from the scholars of Tafsir, Al-Tabari, Ibn Abi Hatim, Ibn Atiyah, Ibn Kathir, and many others, alayhi rahmatullah, all of them refer to this surah as being Surah Al-Ghashiyah. And this is one of those surahs, by the way, that you will find has been mentioned in the sunnah a number of times. As we know, this one and the one that will come, inshallah ta'ala, after this that we will study, Surah Al-A'la, are mentioned in numerous narrations in the sunnah. And that is because of them being one of those surahs that were often recited by the Prophet ﷺ in certain prayers and salawat. So for example, as we know, Salat Al-Jumu'ah, Salat Al-Eid, certain other prayers, Surah Al-Ghashi and Surah Al-A'la were very commonly recited within those particular salahs. Till our time today, it is still the practice of many, many imams that in the Jum'ah prayer, in the Eid prayer and so on, they will still recite these two particular surahs and uh, one of them obviously being Surah Al-Ghashiyah. And so Surah Al-Ghashiyah is mentioned uh, in a number of these books of hadith as being, and, and tafsir and so on, as being referred to by this name, Surah Al-Ghashiyah. Uh, the second name by which it is known is Suratu Hal Ataka Hadith Al essentially the first verse. And this is how Al Imam Al Bukhari refers to it in his Sahih. Al Imam Al Bukhari refers to it in his Sahih as Suratu Hal Ataka Hadith Al Ibn Ashur Ta'ala, he said that it has been established in the Sunnah that this Surah is referred to as being Surah Hal Ataka Hadith Al and he then mentions the narration in the Muwatta of Imam Malik, rahimahullah, that Abdullah ibn Qais asked the companion Al Nu'man ibn Bashir, radiyallahu anhuma, bima kana Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yaqra'u fil jumu'ati ma'a surat al jumu'ah. He said, What did the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam used to recite in the jumu'ah prayer alongside surat al jumu'ah? So he would recite in some narration surat al jumu'ah in the first raka'ah. What does he recite in the second raka'ah? And he says, He would recite Hal Ataka Hadith al Ghashiyah. And so Ibn Ashur says, and so therefore this makes it very clear that one of the names by which the surah was known from the time of the companions radiallahu anhum ajma'een is the name of the surah being Surah Al-Ataka Hadith Al-Ghashiyah. And that is why he says that Imam Al-Bukhari chose this as the name of the surah. The third name by which it is known is Surah Al-Ataka. So essentially the first two words of uh, the first verse of the surah. And Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says, and that's something which you will also uh, find within certain books of tafsir and so on. So, for example, Ibn Atiyah uh, also refers to it as Surah Al-Ataka in some places as well. Um, one of the things that I came across, and you know, for those of you that have been doing uh, QP with me now for some years, you will know that as we go through these surahs and we go through the different names, it is very common amongst the, uh, amongst the scholars of tafsir 
that when they come to the namings of the surah, a very common way of naming surahs is by using the whole of the verse, first verse or part of the first verse. So for example, this is surah Qul Allah Wahad. This is surah Ara'ita Alladhi Yukadhibu Bideen. This is surah Al-Hakum Al-Takathur and so on. Or just the first part, surah al surat Al-Hakum. Right? Surat Ara'ita Alladhi, surat uh, you know, Al-Qari'a or whatever it may be, Al-Adiyat and so on. And so they use just the first portion of the first verse of the surah. One of the interesting things that I came uh, across over the over the summer break as I was going through some of this with one of my, uh, some of the scholars of, of Quran and tafsir and so on. And this is one of the issues that came up in our discussion and the discussion that was being, that was taking place. You find this, like, so for example, you know, you have surah, like for example, this, this surah is a good example. We have three names now. The first one is Surah Al-Ghashiyah, which sounds like a name. The other two, Surah Al-Ataka Hadith Al-Ghashiyah and Surah Al-Ataka, uh, are they names? Because it's essentially just reciting the first portion of the surah, first verse of the surah, or first the first part of the first verse of the surah. And one of those uh, scholars, uh, his position was, and, and it sounded interesting to me, which is why I want to share it to you, and I think it's worth uh, something which is which re- which requires some uh, some contemplation, and 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 you know, it, it is something which shouldn't just be dismissed at a right. It has a, I think, a valid uh, point of view. And that is that when the scholars of tafsir and hadith and so on, they refer to a surah as being surah al-ataka hadith al-ghashiyah or surah al-ataka or surah al-hakum al-takathur or surah al-hakum. This, rather than being a name, is a wasf. It is a description of what it is that they're referring to. So they're not saying that this is the name of the surah, but they're describing the surah by mentioning its opening verse. And that's because, as we know, that for a lot of these surahs, or a number of these surahs, their names were yet, especially in the first two, three, four generations of Islam, their names were yet to be uh, widely accepted by everyone. So certain surahs were known, their names, like Baqarah, is known as being Surah Baqarah and Al-Imran, because they are mentioned in the Sunnah a number of times, and likewise, certain other surahs within the Qur'an. But for many of these surahs, they don't have a single name by which they are known. So even in the hadith that we mentioned at the narration of the Mutal Imam Malik concerning Surah Al-Ghashiyah, it's referred to by the companion not as Al-Ghashiyah, but as the first surah. That, this scholar was saying, is more like a description. Right? If I was to say to you, describe to me, which one is Surah Ghashiyah again? Because there's a number of surahs that begin with Hal. Which one is Ghashiyah? You said to me, oh, it's Al-Hal Ataka Hadith Al-Ghashiyah. Right? And this is probably more so in certain surahs where, for example, they all begin with Hamim. Oh, which one is which one is Surah Al-Dukhan? You know, the one begins with Hamim al Kitab al-Mubin. Okay, but which one of those Hamim al Kitab al-Mubins is, oh, is Inna Anzalnahu Fi Laylat al-Mubarakah? It's almost as if they're giving a description. They're describing to you a surah because if they were to say, for example, it's Surah Ghashiyah or Surah, especially the surahs that their names aren't so well known. So, for example, uh, you know, Surah Al-Baqarah, if someone didn't really know, or Surah Al-Nisa, someone doesn't really have a, a firm grasp of tafsir and Quran, especially in the time, in those times of the early early scholars where uh, for a lot of people, they don't have books and they don't have, you know, nothing's written and nothing's been compiled yet. And so not everyone may know that this surah is called Surah Al-Nisa. But if you were to say, for example, it's Surah, Ya Yuhannasu wahid, and you were to mention a portion of the first verse, everyone knows that surah. Okay, it's the surah that begins in that way. And so therefore it's something which is well known. This was his thing. And so he was saying, essentially the conclusion of this being, that in the books of Tafsir and Hadith, if they give a name like Surah Ikhlas, Surah Baqarah, Surah Al-Imran, Surah Tawbah, Surah Anfal, these are names of Surahs. Surah Al-Mulk, 
These are names of surahs. But if they say, you know, surah noon wal qalam wa mayasturun, that's not a name. That's more akin to a description. That doesn't make like a whole major, you know, difference in terms of what it is that we're doing here and what it is that we're trying to achieve here. Uh, that's not really necessarily what we're uh, what we're referring to here. But it's, I just thought it was an interesting thing because we say that the surah is known by three names. He was saying rather than seeing three names, you say it's known by one name. That's the one that is famously known by. But it's also described as being, you know, in, in a number of other ways. And from those descriptions are that people refer to it by its first verse and, and so on and so forth. Anyway, I thought that was something which was interesting. And so I wanted to share that with you. And I think it's something which is a valid point of view. Uh, because it can be made, the argument can be made uh, as to why it is that someone would describe a surah with the whole of its first verse. Uh, so you can see, and, and it makes sense, especially at a time when, you know, there's not mass printing. People, not even, not everyone has, for example, a printed Quran copy like the way that we do now. Uh, the books of tafsir have yet to be widely published. You know, mainstream printing came only a few hundred years ago. In the olden days, what people used to do, as we know, is that they would make hand uh, they would copy by hand and so you essentially have handwritten copies of these books that people are essentially scribes that are going there and writing the book out from cover to cover and so it's very possible and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best uh, in terms of Surah Al-Ghashiyah then concerning its uh, place of revelation uh, this is a surah that all of the scholars agreed, as far as I know, and Allah knows best, all of the scholars agreed that it is a Makki surah. It is a Makki surah, meaning that it was revealed pre-Hijrah, pre-the migration from Mecca to Medina. And from the scholars who said that it is by ijma', by consensus, that it is a Makki surah. And by the way, this is, you know, from the statements of the companions, Abdullah ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhum, Abdullah ibn Zubair, radiallahu anhum, and others, they stated that the surah was Makki. Uh, and from the scholars who therefore said that it is by ijma' by consensus, it is a Makki uh, surah, from amongst them is Ibn Atiyah. Ibn Atiyah said, التأويل, He said, This surah is a Makki surah, and there is no difference of opinion amongst this between the scholars of tafsir. And likewise, Al Imam al-Shawkani, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, said something very similar. It is a Makki surah without any difference of opinion. And Ibn Ashur, Rahimahullah also says something very similar. He said, He said, It is a Makki surah by agreement. And you will find that those scholars who didn't say it is by consensus, they still said that it is a Makki surah. And so, what I mean by this is that there are certain scholars who, in their books, like Ibn Kathir, often says, Makki, Makki, or Madani, Madani, and he doesn't really go into the differences and so on. But other scholars, like Ibn Atiyah, and sometimes Al Qurtubi, and others, they will say, No, it is by consensus. Al-Shawkani does the same, Ibn Ashur often goes into detail concerning this particular issue as well. And so uh, it is good to know, for example, when Ibn Kathir says that it is Mecca, because Ibn Kathir just gives you the position that he considers to be the strongest. So that doesn't mean that it's no difference of opinion, it's the position that he considers to be the strongest. But if you find amongst other scholars of tafsir that they said it is without difference, by consensus, by agreement, there is no difference of opinion, then you know, okay, now inshallah ta'ala, it's something which isn't the case, even though as we've seen previously that some scholars can say that and you can still find amongst some of the early scholars of tafsir that there is a difference of opinion. But as we mentioned before, it was the methodology of the majority of scholars that if they found that all of the majority of the scholars in any particular field went to one position, even if two, three, four, five, just a very, very small minority disagreed, they would still say by agreement, by consensus. 
It's as if they would consider those two or three to have made a mistake, or maybe they were, you know, they made an error, or maybe, you know, their position, even if they didn't make an error, because it is only one or two against, you know, swathes and, and groups of scholars, they would still consider that to be pretty much by ittifaq. Uh, and this is one of the differences, by the way, uh, you know, we're going on to a few tangents here today, but as a methodology, just generally, in any science that you take, whether it's fiqh or whether it's hadith or whether it's tafsir and so on, uh, one of the things that we're very, you know, in our time today, when it comes to uh, these terminologies, ijma' and, and, you know, these types of terminologies that we have, such as ijma', which means consensus or agreement, we often have the uh, the definition that's given is a very uh, is is taken from a very uh, rhetoric based uh, definition. So, for example, in the sciences, most of these definitions are taken from usul fiqh and so on. And in usul fiqh, a lot of that science was based upon upon kalam, upon rhetoric. It was based upon very you know a very uh, uh, very logical kind of definitions and very logical uh, separations and so on. But actually, when it comes to practically implementing that that type of, of definition, you find that amongst the Salaf they went so you know they didn't apply it in that very black and white way. So, for example, if you were to look at hadith, you know, just because the narrator you have a narrator, for example, who's considered to be weak. So, what we would do today, you know, most people do today is they say, oh, that narrator was weak, so one plus one equals two. The hadith is weak. That's not the way of the scholars of old. The scholars of old wouldn't just say that this person is weak. And because he's weak, we just reject his hadith. No, they would study and they would bring together all of the different narrations, all of the different chains of narration and of narrators that mention that same wording. And they would see it and they would look at the whole thing and then maybe they would accept that hadith. And that's why you have in the books of hadith like Sunan Abi Dawood and At-Tirmidhi and An-Nasai and the Muslim Imam Ahmad and the Muta'am Imam Malik and all of these books of hadith where people today will say, oh, they're weak, that the hadith is weak, the hadith is weak, the hadith is weak. Those scholars accepted them. And they accepted them for hundreds of years. And that's because they didn't consider it to be simply a mathematical equation. You have someone who's weak, so therefore you reject the hadith. It doesn't work like that. Because what it means when a person is weak is that that person makes errors. That person's forgetful. But even the most forgetful person sometimes is still correct. They still remember someone who's prone to making mistakes. doesn't mean that they make a mistake every single day of every single uh, moment in their life or that everything they say is a mistake. It means that this person, you've got to be careful because they make mistakes. But is this particular narration a mistake? Not necessarily. And so therefore this is the difference between, you know, a very, uh, if you like, a very theoretical definition, you know, which is there just to help people to understand the definition in terms of what a definition should be and its practical application. And that's why we see today people will say, for example, in many of the books that are out there other than Bukhari and Muslim, and sometimes even about Bukhari and Muslim, but generally outside of those two collections, people say, you know, there's weakness in it and there's problems in it and, oh, we can't accept it and, and whatever and, and so on. But if you look at it, the, the scholars of the past were not, were not in that particular, you know, were not of that particular uh, particular persuasion. Even in the books of Tafsir, which is our you know, particular uh, study subject here, if you look at the books of, like, for example, Tabari and, you know, all of those, like, books, People today will say actually much of what Tabari mentions is weak. It's not a, it's not an authentic narration because so and so is a weak narrator and so and so is a weak narrator and so on. But you don't find this to be the way that the Salaf Ali Muhammadullah they dealt with this issue in such a very binary yes no black white you know one plus one equals two. It's not a mathematical equation. If it was so easy, then everyone would be able to do it because everyone can go and look up a, a narrator and say oh he's weak so therefore this narration is weak and therefore we're done. 
doesn't require years of study, doesn't require you to go and travel the world, doesn't require you to read all of these collections of hadith and so on. And so the scholars of hadith, they wouldn't do it like this. Sometimes they would have a narrator that everyone, that, that, that is extremely weak, is known to be extremely weak, not just weak, extremely weak, has a lot of errors, but they will still accept that narration for various reasons. Maybe there are other people who accepted, who, who said the same thing. Maybe the meaning of what he said is correct, it's well established in the Sharia. So maybe this wording, okay, I'm not sure, but it's generally accepted in the Sharia that the principle he's speaking about and the general point that he's making is something which the Quran and the Sunnah speak about. There are many different reasons as to why that narration would still be acceptable. There's a difference between the logic and there's a difference between the application. And likewise, Ijma' is one of those examples. Ijma', we say today, is that all, the definition that's given is that all of the scholars have to agree on a particular thing, and then it's called ijma'. But in the Salaf, you don't find that definition. You don't find them practically saying that. And that's why we find, often in tafsir, they will say, this is a Makki surah by ijma'. Ibn Jarir says it, Ibn Atiyah says it, Shawkani, everyone says it. And then you find actually, when you go back to the references, there are not one or two scholars of the Tabi'i disagreed. Al-Dahak, or Makhul, or Ikrima, or someone said, actually this surah is not Makki, it's Madani. But they still said by ijma', and that's because to to uh, you know especially after the time of the tabi'in and so on, it's extremely difficult to get all of the scholars together. Like even practically today for ijma', would you have would you be able to get every single scholar of the world together in a single room and then you ask them to make ijma' in that way? And so this is the understanding of what is a a technical definition or. or you know, the, the definition that's given from a very a very theoretical point of view and the way that then it is applied. But anyway, um, so let me, uh, so, so we were saying therefore that this is a surah, however, that is a Makki surah and I couldn't find any differences of opinion even amongst some of the scholars of Islam and Allah Azza wa Jal uh, knows best. This uh, surah, as we mentioned before, is a surah that has been mentioned in a number of narrations of the Prophet وسلم, as being a surah that the Prophet would recite in certain salawat. And from those salawat is Salatul Jumu'ah and Salatul Eid and certain other prayers that the Prophet وسلم, would lead people in. And Suratul Ghashiyah, as we will see as we go through this surah, speaks about Yawmul Qiyamah and it speaks about the resurrection and it speaks about how people should contemplate and understand and think and prepare for that particular day. And so it is a surah that the Prophet would recite because there is within it a good reminder for people in terms of their standing before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the fragility of this life and this dunya and how they should prepare for the akhirah. This surah consists of 26 verses, 26 verses. So we begin with the surah Allah Azza wa says, A'udhu billahi min shaytan rajim bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. هَلْ أَتَاكَ حَدِيثُ الْغَاشِيَةِ Have you heard tell about the overwhelming event? That is the translation of Professor Abdul Harim. Uh, the professor, uh, the, the translation of Sahih International, Have you has there reached you the report of the overwhelming event? Mufti Taqi, has there come to you the description of the overwhelming event? And uh, Muhsin Khan, has there come to you the narration of the overwhelming event? And then in brackets, i.e. the day of resurrection. Uh, Suratul Ghashiyah is one of those surahs of the Quran that begin with the word hal. Begins with the word hal. And the other surah that begins in this way is Suratul Al-Insan. I think only these two surahs 
um, begin with the word halal. Someone can correct me if I am wrong. As far as I can remember, it is these two surahs, Surah Al-Ghashi and Surah Al-Insan. Hal ata'ala al-insani hinu min al-dahr and hal ata'ka hadith al-ghashiya that begin with the word hal. And hal uh, in general Arabic would be translated as a question. It would be translated as being a question, has or have you or you know something of that regard. It is a question that is being referred to. However, in Arabic, it can also come with another meaning. And that is that the word hal is sometimes used to refer to the meaning of qad. And qad means surely that has come to you, or surely instead of has there. So rather than it being a question, it is a statement of fact. And those two meanings are both used in the Arabic language. Hal as a question is the norm. Hal is normally considered to be one of the seer of istifham. It is one of the ways that you formulate a question or pose a question. But at the same time in the Arabic language, sometimes it comes with the meaning of qad. So it's asked as a question, but it refers to it being a statement of fact instead. And you will find both of those positions amongst the linguists that dealt with the Qur'an, with the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and they try to go through the tafsir of the Qur'an through the Arabic language and try to understand the Arabic language and its nuances within the Book of Allah azza wa You will find both of those positions uh, being mentioned with regards to the meaning of this particular surah. So for example, Qutrub, who is one of the famous scholars of the Arabic language, he said that the meaning of this first verse is that surely there has come to you, O Muhammad wasallam, the news of the overwhelming event meaning Yawm Al-Qiyamah. So it's not a question, but rather it is a statement. And if you look, for example, at the tafsir of Imam Al-Qurtubi, this is the position that he seems to favor. That the Prophet is not being asked a question, but rather he's being told as a statement of fact that there has come to you. There has come to you this particular statement. Uh, others from amongst the linguists and the scholars of language, they said, no, actually the hal refers to it being a question. Has there come to you? And, and it was interesting when we went through those three or four translations and uh, you know maybe there's other translations that will take the first position, but it seems that the translations that we read, all of them took the second position that the hal refers to a question rather than a statement of fact. So for example, Abu Saud, uh, one of the scholars of tafsir who, who focused on the Arabic language, he also said that it is for istifham. It is a question that is being uh, that it is being posed. And he said it's being posed to draw people's attention, to make them understand, and to make them anticipate what will come next. Because Allah says, as they come to the news of the overwhelming event, and then in the next number of verses, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala goes to goes on to describe the situation and the description of people on that day of Yawm al-Qiyamah that he describes as being a a, 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 uh, an, over, an overwhelming event and uh, he uses as an evidence of this the statement of Ibn Abbas concerning the tafsir of this verse he said that before this the Prophet hadn't heard of the detailed explanation of Yawm Al-Qiyamah and so Allah referred or revealed this surah to him and that is why the majority of the scholars say that it is from those early Makki surahs and so Surah Al-Ghashiyah is a surah that the Prophet Sallallahu uh, Wasallam is referring to in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of being told, has the news come to you in terms of the detail? And then the Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam is informed of the details of some of what will happen on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And so Allah Azza wa Jalla refers that to him. And this is a position that it seems, and Allah knows best, that uh, the teacher of our teacher, Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqiti, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, in Adwa'ul Bayan, this is what he also seems to go towards and favor 
And likewise, Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, uh, also mentioned this. And he said, Al-Iftitahu bil-istifhami an-bulughi khabari al-ghashiyah musta'amalun fi al-tashwiqi ila ma'rifati hadha al-khabar lima yatarattabu alihi min al-mu'idah. He said that Allah Azza begins the surah with a question concerning the ghashiyah and it is done in order to make people think and to in order to make them anticipate the news of what Allah Azza will mention in terms of it being a reminder concerning Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And he said that even if we say that the word Hal, which is the question here, is taking the meaning of Qad, which means surely, then that is to also do the same thing. And that is because when you ask a question and you pose it in such a way that it is already known as a fact, right? Uh, you know, for example, if someone was to say, have you seen how bright the sun is? Right? Everyone knows how bright the sun is. But you pose it in a question, not because you want that person, for example, to say, yes, the sun is bright, but to make them look and, and pay even further attention to something which is also already widely known and accepted. And so likewise, the Prophet ﷺ is being posed with a question here to make people understand and to think and to contemplate and to reflect about Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Hal ataka hadith? Has there come to you the news? Uh, meaning, has there come to you the news of what will take place on Yawm Al-Qiyamah? And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mentioning this as a news. And that doesn't mean that it's something which is breaking or something which is occurring now, because we normally say something which is news is something which is relatively recent, or is relatively new. Right? And that's why it's called news, from the word new. We call it news because it is something which is relatively recent and relatively new. However, Allah Azza wa says or uses this word hadith as it is something which has already taken place, meaning that it's something which is already going to be established. And so it will be new for the people on that day. And it is new in the sense that they are hearing about it for the first time. But in terms of it taking place, it is already something which is an established fact because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has decreed it to be in that particular way. Allah Azawajal calls, uh, or from the names of Yawm Al-Qiyamah, therefore as we can see from this surah, is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala refers to it here, and that is that it is called Al-Ghashiyah. From the names of Yawm Al-Qiyamah is that it is Al-Ghashiyah. And Al-Ghashiyah, the word Ghashiyah, Yagsha, is something which overwhelms, is something which completely covers. And so it overwhelms, it over or it encompasses. That is the meaning of the word Ghashiyah. Uh, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin, Al-Shanqiti rahimahullah ta'ala, he said Al-Ghashiyah, Abu Hayyan rahimahullah, the famous scholar of tafsir and the linguist and the, and the grammarian of the Arabic language and so on, he said that it is something which is, uh, which encompasses and covers all of the people, taghsha nas it is something which covers all of the people. And then they differed as to what it is that that's referring to, what is it, this, what is it that this event is referring to, what is the ghashiyah that is overwhelming what is that referring to? He said some of them said that it refers to Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And this was what was reported from the likes of Ibn Abbas anhuma and Qatada from the scholars of the Tabi'een. And others from amongst them said it refers to the how fire and nar. And this was the statement of Sa'id ibn Al-Musayyab ta'ala. And both of them, he said, we've used the same verse of the Qur'an as the basis for this. And that is that Allah Azza wa Jal says, on the day that they will be encompassed or that they will be overwhelmed by the punishment of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. 
however, the position of the majority seems to be that Allah Azza knows best. It seems to be that it's referring to Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And Imam Al-Tabari said that Allah Azza made it general. He didn't specify is it Qiyamah or is it the fire. So therefore, we should also make it general with that specification. And that is that Yawm Al-Qiyamah, therefore, will be something which encompasses the people, overwhelms them. And for the people of the fire that will enter the fire, that is also something which will overwhelm them. Ar-Razi said that the Yawm Al-Qiyamah is called by this name. Uh, one of the names of Yawm Al-Qiyamah is Al-Ghashiyah. The reason why it is called this name is because in the Arabic language, anything which encompasses something from every single angle, it is called Ghashi or it is called Ghash. Everything, something, anything which is encompassed from every single angle, then that is something which is called Ghash. And that is why Allah refers to this. He says, Yawm Al-Qiyamah is such an event that it will encompass the people of that day from every single angle. There is no escape, there is no way out, there is no exit, there is no, you know, uh, any way that a person can escape what will take place on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. He said, from the ways that it will be overwhelming, number one, is that it will come upon people suddenly. Yawm Al-Qiyamah will be established upon them suddenly, as Allah Azza says in Surah Yusuf, أَفَأَمِنُوا أَن تَأْتِيَهُمْ غَاشِيَةٌ مِّنْ عَذَابِ اللَّهِ أَوْ تَأْتِيَهُمُ السَّاعَةُ بَغْتَةٌ Do the people feel safe, that they won't be encompassed or overwhelmed by the punishment of Allah, or that the hour will come upon them suddenly? That's one meaning. The second reason why Al-Qiyamah is called, or one of the names of Yawm Al-Qiyamah is Al-Ghashiyah, he said, is because it will encompass all of the people, overwhelm all of them from the first of them to the last of them. And so it encompasses humankind and the creation of Allah Azzawajal in totality. Number three, that they will be overwhelmed by the many terrors of that day. So the day of Yawm Al-Qiyamah, as we know, will bring terrors from the standing before Allah Azzawajal and uh, standing on the plane of, of resurrection, the plane of gathering, and the sun being brought close to the people's head and people sweating profusely and all of the things you know that we know in the, within the Quran and the Sunnah that the child, his hair will go white and the pregnant woman will miscarry and the people will present themselves as being drunk even though they are not drunk but rather they will be afraid of Allah Azzawajal's punishment upon that day and so therefore that is one of the other ways that it will overwhelm on that day and that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says النار, that their faces will be encompassed by the fire and also, he said, because Al-Ghashiyah is something which will specifically take place to the people of the fire. So the first three is something which will happen to all of the people on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Everyone will be overwhelmed upon that day. However, for the people of the fire, there is a different type of overwhelming for them, and that is the punishment that they will find within Yawm Al-Qiyamah in the fire. And that is because the fire will completely encompass them, as we know, and they will be punished by it for the rest of eternity for those people who Allah Azza wa places into the fire for all of eternity. And that is what Imam Tabari as we said, he said you simply make it general. Say that it is general and keep it as being general in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala begins therefore this surah by mentioning this particular thing and that is Has there come to you the news of the overwhelming event and that it's referring to Yawm Al-Qiyamah. One of the things that we know is that the people of the time of the Prophet wasallam, the, the vast majority of them in terms of the Quraysh and in terms of the pagan Arabs of, uh, of Arabia, their general belief system was that they denied resurrection. 
their general belief system was that they didn't accept Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Their general belief system is that they believe that they will live in this world and they will die and their bones would be turned to dust and their bodies would disintegrate into the earth and that would be the end. They didn't believe as some, uh, you know, some like some philosophies and some religions and some theologies have the belief of resurrection, like we have in Islam. Another from amongst them, uh, and, and those people who believe in resurrection are also of different types. Some believe that it will be a resurrection to a different life, like we believe that it will be the next life, it will be a different life, and so it will not be the same existence of the dunya. But some people who believe in resurrection believe in different philosophies. They believe that essentially you come back into this world again as a different being. It's a type of reincarnation. And they believe that the better you are in this world, so if you're a good person and you do good and you help people and whatever, then when you come around again and you are reincarnated into this world, then you come as a better person. You have a better life and you have a, a more, you know, maybe you're, you're wealthier or you have a nicer life and so on. And the more evil you are, then the worse it will be for you next time around and so on. And it goes on and on. And they call it like the wheel of life or something like that. They call it like some kind of circle. They have some terminology for it, which I'm not quite uh, exactly sure what it is, but that's essentially what they're referring to. And then there are people who, as we know, you know which is the mainstream thing that you find today amongst atheists and, and, and uh, agnostics and, and other people, that they just simply reject the very notion of there not being a qiyamah. And this was the position of the Arab Mushrikeen, the, the Kuffar of Quraysh and the pagan Arabs of Arabia were of this position. They would say, وَقَالُوا مَا هِيَ إِلَّا حَيَاتُنَا الدُّنْيَا نَمُوتُ وَنَحْيَا وَمَا يُهْلِكُنَا إِلَّا الدَّهَرُ They said that it is only the life of this world, we live, we die, nothing destroys us except the passage of time. Meaning when our time is up, we die and that's the end of it. And that's why they would say, as, and, and not just uh, the people of Quraysh, but even amongst the previous generations, Many of the, of the nations of the Prophets of Allah had this same issue. If they were to believe in some form of resurrection, that would help them to have a belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or a God because then they would know that there is a resurrection. But when you reject resurrection, then you don't need to also believe in a God because why would you live your life according to a higher ideal when there is no reason to have a higher ideal anyway because you're going to die and there's nothing in terms of an accounting or a reckoning. And so they would say, Are you telling us that when we die and our bodies and, 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 and bones turn into dust, that we will be resurrected? And so this is something which you will find that the Arabs in general had as well. This was their general belief and their general aqidah. And so they denied not only Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Quran and the Prophet وسلم, they denied Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And one of the things that you find in the Sunnah is that the Prophet ﷺ from all of the pillars of Iman would focus on the two that people most need in terms of living up to the ideals that Allah wants from them, living up to the morals and the character and the character and the and the ibadah and the worship and the belief and the theology that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants from us. Those two pillars being belief in Allah, belief in Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Man kana yu'minu billahi wal al-akhir. There are a number of ahadith that begin in this way. Whosoever believes in Allah, believes in the last day. And the scholars of hadith have a you know, discussion as to why the Prophet ﷺ focused on those two. And one of the reasons that Allah knows best is because your belief in Allah is the essence of everything. You believing in Allah is the essence of your salvation and so on. But some people believe in Allah and they don't necessarily believe in the resurrection. Or their understanding of resurrection is not the way that it should be. So someone who believes in God 
but says actually you know next time around all, all that happens is you die and you come back to this world and you're not really punished but maybe you'll have a harder life but if you then do good in that life then maybe the third time you come around you'll have an easier life their understanding of resurrection is not correct and so therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the Prophet would focus on these two particular pillars of Islam because if you believe in Allah truly and you worship Allah as you should and you believe in Yawm Al-Qiyamah that you will only have one chance in this world then you die then you stand before Allah and Allah will hold you to account He will reckon you you will stand before Him and Allah will present to you all of your deeds no matter how great no matter how small and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will list for you every single thing that you did and Allah will account you for everything the smallest oppression and the smallest harm that you did to anyone even to the animals, even to a child, whatever it may be, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will bring it. And Allah azza wa will hold you to account for it. As Allah azza wa says, tells us in the Quran, مَا هذا الْكِتَابِ That the people of the fire will say when their record of deeds is presented to them, what kind of a record is this? لَا يُغَادِرُ صَغِيرَةً وَلَا كَبِيرَةً إِلَّا أَحْصَاهَا There is nothing great nor small except that it is accounted therein. وَوَجَدُوا مَا عَمِلُوا حَاضِرًا and they will find everything within it. Everything that they did will be accounted for. That type of accounting, when you have that type of belief in Yawm Al-Qiyamah, that's something which will make any person stop. Who truly believes in that, you stop. You stop in terms of oppressing others. You stop in terms of taking rights that don't belong to you. You stop in terms of not giving to others the rights that belong to them, and so on and so forth. All of those things come about because you know that your time in this life is finite and limited and fragile. And you may not have more than a day or two or a week or a year or two or five or ten or whatever it may be. But it is limited and it is quickly passing by. But you will stand before Allah Azza wa Jalla and Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala will hold you to account. That is something which gives a person a different type of understanding in terms of what they need to do in their life from a person who doesn't believe in resurrection or their belief in, belief in resurrection is not to that same level or it is of a different type of level. And Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this surah, it is one of those surahs that focuses greatly on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And it will focus, as many of these surahs do, as we will see inshallah ta'ala in the weeks to come, it will focus upon the punishment of the people of evil, and it will focus upon the reward of the people of good. And so Allah Azza will mention both of those things in terms of punishment and in terms of reward, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will command the people to uh, pay heed and to reflect and to contemplate in terms of the signs that Allah has given to them in this dunya. So I think inshallah ta'ala we will stop there today uh, ta'ala, and next week inshallah ta'ala we'll continue from verse number 2 inshallah ta'ala. If there's any questions uh, we can take them otherwise we can stop for today. If anyone has any questions, you can you can just post them in the chat. Uh, and as I said before, I, I think I mentioned this to you guys last year. Uh, there is a delay, so when I speak and when you hear it, it comes like there's a delay of a good like 10, 15, 20 seconds. So it would be helpful, like in terms of um, you know anyone that does have questions or points that they want to make, if you kind of have it typed up and just ready, and then you can just like post it as we're getting towards the end of the class. It would save a lot of time rather than me telling you that I have to wait. Uh, and then you post and then you know we that kind of like takes a lot of time and sometimes i may miss questions because i assume there's no questions but people have like there's a delay in what they heard from me then they're typing 
and I'm assuming that there's no questions and I finish the class and then we realize that there's actually questions uh, that were posted. And if that does ever happen, then you, all you have to do is, uh, you know, just 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 do it again next week. Why was this surah recited in Jumu'ah? Because it is, uh, you know, Jumu'ah, as we know, Eid is the time when all of the Muslims gather. The, the Muslims gather most in those types of prayers. And so the Prophet ﷺ would choose surahs of the Qur'an. And that's not to say that you can't recite any surah of the Qur'an, but he would often recite certain surahs. And one of the things that you will see across all of them is that you will see that there are um, that, that the Prophet focused on surahs that speak about Yawm Al-Qiyamah and death and resurrection and how fire and Jannah and so on. And because it is a good reminder. And so the khutbah you know, is meant to be relatively short, 10-15 minutes is all you have. And so the khatib may speak about you know, different things because he has to address a whole wide variety of issues that the community is going through. But then in the salah, you always have, and inshallah ta'ala, once we do the tafsir of these two surahs, inshallah it will be something uh, you know, where you will find uh, you will find that it is a good reminder for a person to have at least that once a week. Could you please suggest some references to study science of Quranic verse numbering? I don't know of anyone who in the English language has dealt with this topic in a way that should be dealt. Uh, and even in Arabic you will find that many of the books, uh, the classical books, aren't necessarily read and, and, and so on and so forth. One of the greatest scholars to have uh, spoke, spoken about this is uh, the famous scholar of Quran and, and the specialist in Qur'an and so on, Abu Amr al-Dani, rahimahullah ta'ala. So Abu Amr al-Dani, you know, is something which is, uh, is one of the greatest scholars of the time. He is the teacher of the teacher of Imam al-Shatibi, who wrote the famous poem of al-Shatibi and al-Qira'at. So he is someone who has, who focused greatly on all of these issues of waqf al-ibtida and adul ayy and all of these different particular sciences, as we mentioned last week, the sciences that are related to recitation of the Qur'an. So tafsir is not related to the way that you recite the Qur'an. But these sciences that we mentioned last week, like rasm and dabt and addu al-ayy and waqf al-ibtida and tajweed and so on, and qiraat, these are to do with recitation. And Abu Amr al-Dani was one of those great scholars. But his works and other works are in Arabic. So I don't know of any in the English language, but if someone does, uh, please post and, and, and help us all. Can you quickly mention surahs that have a difference of opinion where it was revealed? No, there's many. Uh, many. So if you go back to our like previous four years of classes, the different surahs that we've covered, you'll see a number of examples of that. Okay, barakallahu feekum, wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in, wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.